few years ago, we studied through the Gospel of John together. Let's uh, return there this morning and look at John's account of the resurrection. John chapter 20, the first few verses. <coughs> Jesus Christ is alive. He is risen from the dead. That is arguably the most spectacular claim in history. If the resurrection of Jesus is not true, Christianity is a tragic hoax. In spite of the centuries of Christian traditions all over the world, it's a hoax. In spite of the great humanitarian endeavors advanced in Christ's name, it's a hoax. In spite of the best in art and music which it has inspired, it's a hoax. That's what the Apostle Paul himself says. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. You see, if Christians are wrong at this point, we are truly fools. For if the cornerstone of the faith falls, everything built on it tumbles behind it. On the other hand, if Jesus did rise from the dead... This is the greatest event in history. Then it means Jesus is who he said he was. His death is indeed sufficient payment for our sins. We can know we have eternal life. His kingdom has begun. Its implications for the world have only begun to be seen. And we owe him all honor and obedience as the reigning sovereign of heaven and earth. Indeed, if Jesus has risen from the dead, we will stand before him in judgment one day, just as he said. So which is it? Is Jesus Christ alive? Did he rise from the dead? And if so, how would we know? Or is this just some blind leap of faith? upon which so much depends. To be Christians, must we just throw away our brains and believe the unbelievable? As Mark Twain once said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Is that what we're asked to do? No. Jesus' resurrection is a unique event to be sure. We have never witnessed such a thing. I have not and you have not. So we are naturally skeptical. But God is greater than our skepticism, and he gives us reasons to believe. That's what we have in our text. Let me read it. John 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. As we consider our text this morning, I want to tell you right up front uh, that uh, I have extensively used John Stott's writing on this in his little book, Basic Christianity, which I wholeheartedly recommend to you. You ought to read it at some point. Luke, in the beginning of the book of Acts, writes that after his suffering, Jesus showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. I would suggest that in this text we have two of those convincing proofs that Jesus is alive. And that's our two points this morning. First of all, an empty tomb cries out, Jesus is risen. An empty tomb cries out, Jesus is risen. You know, all over the world there are great monuments built over the remains of famous people, providing a place where admirers can come and remember them and pay homage to them. This morning there is no such place to go and honor Jesus. There's a cave where he once was buried, but that tomb is now empty. Now 2,000 years later it still silently proclaims, He is not here. He is risen. In all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is the first announcement of Jesus' resurrection. A group of women arrive at the tomb to find it empty, demanding some explanation. And that's what we have here in the first two verses. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. In other words, she was troubled because the tomb was empty and she didn't know how to explain it. We cannot overemphasize the importance of this truth. Only 50 days later, Jesus' disciples began to preach right there in the same city of Jerusalem that this Jesus rose from the dead. Now, it's inconceivable that they would even have received a hearing if only a short walk away down in the garden, people could see a sealed tomb in which his remains lay. But instead, this notable event of the execution of the teacher from Nazareth, which had been such a public spectacle with the whole city crying, crucify, crucify, had ended not with a neatly secured tomb sealed with the Roman seal, but it ended with a gaping empty hole, which demanded some explanation. So on the day of the Feast of Pentecost, Peter unashamedly stood up in front of these uh, people with these words, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, and you put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible 
for death to keep its hold on him. Peter went on to preach that day that David had foretold this event and that it was clear David was not speaking of himself. And how do we know? Because he says David's tomb is here to this day. We know where he's buried. He's not talking about himself. But that was not the case with Jesus. When Peter preached this way, his explanation that Christ had risen was credible because just a little ways away stood an empty tomb, verifying the remarkable announcement that Peter made. And so on that day of Pentecost, in that same city where Jesus had been crucified and buried, among people who could go and check it out, rather than Peter being laughed to scorn, 3,000 people believed. Not in a blind leap of faith, but with faith based on the evidence of an empty tomb. Now this is such powerful evidence that many, many attempts have been made to explain it away. John Stott, in his little book, Basic Christianity, which I mentioned, summarizes five theories, five kinds of theories that have arisen. So let me just go through the five with you. First of all, some people uh, say perhaps the women went to the wrong place. After all, it was very early in the morning. It was not quite light yet. Perhaps in their grief, they were just mistaken and went to an unused tomb that was indeed empty because it had always been empty. But then these people, these women, though grieving, they were not fools. At least two of them, Mary Magdalene, mentioned in our text here, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, had watched the whole burial process just two days earlier. And now they're bringing others to the same tomb that they had been at before. Furthermore, several trips were made during the day. Did they keep making the same mistake? Now you see, these women were on a practical mission. They were grieving, but they were not in hysteria. And even if they did make a mistake, what about Peter and John, who, according to verse 3 and 4, ran on ahead of them to see for themselves? Did they make the same mistake? And was there no one around to correct such an obvious error? Now, this is not an adequate explanation for the empty tomb. The hardcore reality is they found an empty tomb because Jesus was not where they left him. The empty tomb cries out, he is risen from the dead. The second kinds of arguments that are set forth are various swoon theories to justify the empty tomb. These swoon theories would have us believe that Jesus never really died at all, but only fainted, passed out on the cross, and then later was revived in the tomb and presented himself alive as if he had risen from the dead. Even Newsweek magazine, in an article on the resurrection a few years ago, called these swoon theories fanciful. Swoon theories are fanciful indeed because Jesus was not crucified, remember, by his friendly disciples who were being nice to him. In fact, he was not even crucified by his Jewish enemies who, though they hated him and wanted him dead, were were unaccustomed to the ugly realities of execution. Rather, he was crucified by Roman soldiers who were experts in this grisly business. No one walked away from a Roman execution. You see, if these swoon theories were true, we would have to believe that after a Roman scourging, which killed many victims, 
and a crucifixion, the longest and most agonizing kind of execution. Now cold and without food and without medical attention, locked up in a cave, Jesus somehow revived on his own. But there's even more. We would have to believe that having been revived, he was then able to free himself from grave clothes with which he had been wrapped from head to toe, roll back a stone that three women wondered how they were going to be able to move, terrified armed Roman guards enough to escape from them, walk several miles on wounded feet, and then present himself to the apostles as a victorious over death. That's truly fanciful. The hard reality is the grave was empty because Jesus had risen from the dead. The third kinds of ex- explanations that have been offered is that thieves stole the body. And the disciples then seized the opportunity to declare that he was risen. Well, we know grave robbers were sometimes a problem. And Jesus certainly was buried in a rich man's tomb. But there was really no motive. For what reason would somebody risk their life to steal his body? For Jesus was not buried with riches. And it was obvious that that was the case in the way he died. It was the, 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 the soldiers publicly divided up his his only possessions there at the foot of the cross. Furthermore, the grave was sealed and guarded by Roman soldiers. Pilate, in his uh, diligence to prevent anyone from stealing the body, actually helps validate the, the Bible's claims. For if someone stole the body, how did they get past the guards? And even beyond that, if they stole the body, why did they leave the grave closed? Thieves don't come in and neatly fold things up and leave them. They grab the body and run, or they leave a mess. Indeed, there's not one shred of evidence that thieves stole the body. Instead, the best explanation is the one given in the biblical account. The tomb was empty because Jesus rose from the dead. The fourth kind of uh, theories that have been suggested are that somehow the disciples stole the body. In his account, Matthew uh, explains that this was the story made up by the Roman authorities to keep themselves out of trouble, that his disciples came and stole the body. And it was, but it was precisely this possibility that originally caused Pilate to seal up the tomb and post an armed guard. His order was, make it as secure as you can. So are we to believe that a little group of women or these little group of disciples who were so afraid they ran for cover when even when Jesus was arrested somehow came and outwitted Roman guards and successfully moved the stone and entered the tomb and stole the body, leaving the grave clothes all neatly intact and got away without any detection? Actually, there's even a bigger problem with the suggestion that the disciples stole the body. Over the next 50 years or so, these same disciples who preached the resurrection as the cornerstone of the faith were jailed and flogged and executed one after another after another for this belief that Jesus was alive. Did they really go to their deaths decades later for something they knew to be a hoax? Did none of them ever come clean and talk? That 
is inconceivable. At least they believed what they preached. Chuck Colson was once asked what he learned from the Watergate scandal in which he participated. And he replied, I learned that Jesus must certainly have been raised from the dead. Now that's a strange answer. <laughs> but listen to his explanation, I quote him. He says, it was the Watergate <clears throat> cover-up that left me convinced that the biblical accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ are historically reliable. In my Watergate experience, I saw the inability of men, powerful, highly motivated professionals, to hold together a conspiracy based on a lie. It was less than three weeks from the time that Mr. Nixon knew all the facts to the time that John Dean went to the prosecutors. The actual cover-up lasted less than one month. Yet Christ's followers, powerless followers, maintained their grim, to their grim deaths by execution that they had in fact seen Jesus Christ raised from the dead there was no conspiracy. There was no Passover plot. Men and women do not give up their comfort and certainly not their lives for what they know to be a lie. You see, the truth is the disciples didn't steal the body. He rose from the dead. That's why the tomb was empty. It was silently shouting the testimony, he's not here. He's risen from the dead. Well, finally, one more theory, one fifth thing has arisen to explain away the empty tomb, and that is that perhaps Jesus' enemies, either the Jewish or Roman authorities, stole the body. Now, there would certainly be a motive here to prevent the claims of a resurrection, uh, as Jesus had predicted. There's no positive evidence of such a plan. To the contrary, if they had the body, why was it not produced when they tried so desperately to silence the apostles from preaching this gospel of a risen Jesus. Can you just imagine the scene on the day of Pentecost? Peter's up preaching to thousands on the day, telling them that Jesus, whom they crucified, is alive and risen from the dead, and in walked the Pharisees carrying his body. It's the perfect squelch. But it was not possible, as much as they would have loved to present his body and silence Christians forever. It was not possible, for they had no body. The tomb was empty because Jesus had, was risen just as he said. This morning, I know that on the surface, at first glance, it's easy for any of us to disbelieve in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We've never seen such a thing. We know no one who's ever seen such a thing. But I challenge you to disprove it. To honestly look at the evidence and explain it away. The tomb stands empty. It must be answered. And repeatedly when men have set out to put the resurrection story to rest to decisively refute the evidence they have become Christians as they had to reckon with the unbending facts. 
the angel's words that first resurrection morning still challenge our skepticism. He is not here. He is risen. Come and see the place where he lay. The empty tomb cries out, Jesus is risen indeed. That's the first thing we ought to learn from this text. The first argument, the first um, proof, if you will. But then there's a second one. And it's this. Deserted grave clothes testify Jesus arose. Deserted grave clothes testify Jesus arose. You remember the television stories of Lieutenant Columbo a few years back, the bumbling detective? In his halting, uh, seeming, na- seemingly naive way, he persisted with his curious questions until he uncovered that one little inconsistency which seemed such an insignificant detail but eventually exposed the truth and broke the case wide open. The deserted grave clothes were such a little detail for the Apostle John. In fact, in almost every account of the grave being empty, the body being gone, the point is made that the grave clothes were not gone. And in our text, it becomes clear that this was that one nagging detail which first convinced John that Jesus had risen from the dead long before he understood the scriptures about it or before he had seen the risen Christ. So what did John see that was so convincing? Well, to understand, we have to look back at John 19, where we're told how Jesus was prepared for burial. Let me read a couple of verses. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. In other words, they took the body of Jesus, and they wound linen bandages around his body, and around his body, sprinkling the powdered spices in as they went. One writer explained that the myrrh caused the bandages, the cloth, to stick to the body better. And then Jesus' head was similarly wrapped with a separate cloth, leaving his face and neck bare. So Jesus was laid to rest on a stone in the tomb. Now, if we had been there in that tomb, what would we have seen if we had been there to watch the resurrection happen? Well, Jesus didn't yawn and stretch and sit up. No, he was wrapped tight in cloths of linen. He couldn't. But you see, he was not just resuscitated. He was resurrected to a new kind of existence. John Stott explains what we might have seen. I quote, We should suddenly have noticed that the body had disappeared. It would have vaporized, being transmuted into something new and different and wonderful. It would have passed through the grave clothes as it was later to pass through closed doors, leaving them untouched and and almost undisturbed. Almost, but not quite. 
For the body cloths under the weight of 75 pounds of spices, once the support of the body had been removed, would have subsided or collapsed and now be lying flat. A gap would have appeared between the body cloths and the head napkin itself. According to verse 8, John saw and believed. There was only one explanation. The cloths had not been unwrapped. They were not disturbed. They were not manipulated. But they were empty, vacated, deserted. For the body of Jesus once held in their bondage had risen. Deserted grave clothes silently demonstrate that Jesus rose from the dead. Oh dear people, this is just the beginning. Luke says there are many, many convincing proofs. John was just the first to believe. Many others followed. Most of Jesus' disciples came to believe by actually seeing Jesus alive. Paul reports 500 saw him at one time, most of whom were still living eyewitnesses when Paul wrote that. And then as verse 9 indicates, some, as they came to understand the scriptures better, they understood that this is what the Old Testament had predicted. And that increased people's faith and their confidence. And then, of course, as people saw lives radically changed by the power of the risen Christ, even more believed. And now we have the cumulative weight of all of that evidence recorded in the scriptures in order that we might believe. But it all begins right here. An empty tomb and deserted grave clothes. Every year as Easter approaches, I must confess to you, I do a lot of thinking about the resurrection. We live in a world that does not think in ways that gives even the possibility of such an event. And I repeatedly have to ask myself, do I really believe this? I'm going to stand up and tell people this. Do I really believe this? There's so many questions I cannot answer. And even the answers I have, I cannot fathom. This event stretches my mind to the limit and still leaves more to understand. But may I suggest, we don't have to understand everything to know something is true. And the fact is, on a Sunday morning, so many centuries ago, Jesus' disciples discovered an empty tomb and undisturbed grave clothes. And by that evening, more than a dozen of them had seen him alive. They had seen him. They had heard him. They had touched him. They had eaten with him. 
So this morning, without apology, I challenge our residual unbelief. We may choose to ignore the evidence, but God has made it plain. Jesus is alive. He has risen from the dead. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, in the passage we read this morning, you tell us that our thoughts are not your thoughts and our ways are not your ways. We admit we can't even comprehend the world that we try to measure and discover and analyze, let alone comprehend miraculous things that we've never seen before or since. But thank you, Lord, that you've not asked us to believe the unbelievable, that you've not asked us to make some blind leap of faith and believe something for which there's no evidence, even though you do ask us to believe that which is beyond our comprehension. Grant us, Lord, a sound mind and a passionate faith to believe what you tell us, what you show us, whether anyone else believes it or not. And believing that Jesus rose from the dead, help us, Lord, to understand the profound implication for the rest of our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.